Hey, Clarice, uh, thank you for coming in. I just think your work is uh, amazing. Uh, just what a wonderful background in terms of the work you've done in the past and what you're doing now and what you're leading. And that's why I reached out and say, hey, let's do this interactive uh, interactive chat. And I should mention to the audience that just a reminder, this is unscripted. So we're just going to go where it goes. So again, thank those you for the, coming in. And those are the nicest that. chats. The un unscripted ones are the nicest chats. <laughs> so thank you for coming in and, and sharing your insights. Well, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be uh, talking to you and excited to share some of our ideas, some of our research. So feel free to, to jump right in, or should I jump right in? Shall I tell you a little bit where we're from and where we're going? Well, what I'll do, first of all, is my audience is always curious. You've got this wonderful background. You're doing tremendous work. And there must have been inflection points in your life, maybe two or three. Could have been when you were really young or in school. Could have been a mentor, something that happened in your career, uh, your professional life. You know, name those things that were magic in your life to create this wonderful work, uh, person you are today. That, that That's really crazy because growing up, which is very different from your usual origin story. Growing up, I uh, wanted to be a writer, a journalist. <laughs> uh, I didn't grow up liking physics or chemistry in particular and um, I read a lot though and uh, a cool thing is that more and more I realize how the capability to uh, communicate my research is related to my love for reading uh, to my language skills that I developed in, in in childhood so that's a very particular point about uh, myself uh, I work uh, in a weird field called quantum biology, which is uh, the emergent field that wants to assess the extent to which uh, quantum mechanics is playing a role in biology, natively, endogenously. And um, I want to talk about an inflection point that happened uh, during my first postdoc. So uh, for my graduate studies, I worked on technological quantum sensors um, as a graduate student at MIT. So actually, uh, one can prove that if you use a quantum object, a tiny object such as an electron as a sensor, your measurement is improved. In other words, the sensor quantumness enhances your result. Um, after my PhD, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I spent uh, a year teaching in my department. Um, and then I started sending out uh, postdoc applications. And I was accepted to a, a chemistry a group at Berkeley. And, um, and for that uh, work, uh, I was, we were developing an imaging modality and I was developing a tiny little chip. I was in, in like a nanofabrication lab uh, all day, but I was within a chemistry group. And then our uh, our chip uh, was designed to uh, image chlorophyll, but the chip wasn't working with the chlorophyll. Uh, we didn't know if it was a problem with the chlorophyll samples with the chip. I started looking at other molecules that we, we, we could test instead of chlorophyll. And by chance, I uh, stumbled upon a phenomenon uh, that really looked like quantum sensing happening inside proteins. I um, found a class, I mean, that it was known, uh, there's a class of proteins that respond 
to external stimuli in the same way that technological quantum sensors would. It's just that chemists don't call it that. So that's a pivotal moment for me because uh, I then realized that I could maybe bring instrumentation that I developed during my graduate career to study these phenomena in biology from a very high-tech level. So that that what made my career change completely. And I'm like, now I know uh, what I want to be doing, the type of research that I want to be doing. I want to uh, be uh, researching uh, putative uh, quantum phenomena in chemistry, in biology. You know, that's really fascinating. So you're indicating that you started with this really strong interest in literature and you read a lot and and that would really give you sort of a more interdisciplinary sort of feel, I guess. And then and then you end up going into the hard sciences. I mean, uh, physics is sort of a hardcore uh, science area. And you got your bachelor's there and then you end up with a uh, a master's in physics at uh, Cambridge at uh, Trinity College. And then you end up uh, electrical engineering with your PhD at MIT. Yes. And then uh, postdoctorate appointments in uh, biomedical or bioengineering at Stanford and then chemistry at Berkeley. So that you talked about yes. how all of these different aspects gave you this lens to now doing this amazing work in uh, quantum biology, uh, where you lead the qubit lab at UCLA. So I, I can see now how all the pieces come together, but it means that you're really thinking in, in a lateral way as well, plus yes. depth. So that's fascinating. Okay. Okay. So now to the audience, let's get into more detail about quantum biology. I mean, you, you sort of hinted at what quantum biology is. Well, let's get into more detail of what quantum biology is. What is quantum biology? Okay. So, um, First of all, before anything and before talking about uh, quantum biology in particular, I just want to mention that we already live in a quantum powered world, right? All this hype with quantum, like, yes, we now have quantum computing, quantum algorithms, but simple things such as lasers, uh, magnetic resonance scanners in the hospital, uh, GPS, uh, even your classical laptop they're all already powered by the laws of quantum physics, right? And I want to point out that uh, humans uh, developed quantum technologies after, say, 300 years after the, the, the Industrial Revolution. So I don't think it's crazy to think that nature, who's an engineer with like 8 billion years of experience, why nature shouldn't have stumbled upon it to build better technologies before. So there's evidence. Uh, all the evidence is correlative at this point. I'll explain a little bit what I mean by that. But there's evidence that nature is indeed harnessing a quantumness to function and to function optimally. Um, you might have heard about a couple of the poster children of this field of quantum biology. For example, photosynthesis, right? Uh, you might know that the efficiency of the photosynthetic processes that occurs in plants, like the, the photon absorption and dumping of this energy of this photon is way higher than any solar cell ever built by humankind. Uh, and one of uh, the, 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 the correlative evidence is that this is done helped by a um, chemical uh, process that depends on vibrations in a quantum mechanical way. Uh, for the quantum expert that, that is that, that is in the audience, it's called a noise-assisted transport of energy. 
so photosynthesis is very famous. The other thing that is very famous are birds. Um, there is, um, it's known, it's been known for 50 years that birds, when they migrate north-south, that they use, at least as a partial cue, the magnetic field of the Earth, which is like orders of magnitude smaller than the magnetic field produced by your cell phone. So how might they be doing this? And um, nowadays, the, uh, the evidence points to the fact that they do so via a quantum sensing-like phenomena, a phenomenon happening inside uh, proteins inside the cells of the birds. So uh, this is uh, a bird's eye view of how I would define quantum biology. It's the study at different length scales and time scales of uh, the extent to which quantum degrees of freedom native to biology are affecting macroscopic biological function, affecting how the birds migrate, how the, 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 the plant processes things. Uh, I'll, I'll keep it at that to keep the surprise because it's um, just keeping it to plants and birds is a gross understatement of how organism agnostic and how widespread quantum effects in biology truly seem to be. You know, that's really, really, really fascinating. And I can see sort of this related discussion I had with Roger Penrose, where he talks about quantum gravity collapse of micro, uh, these uh, microtubules, and the, it's, it's, it's an outlier uh, concept, and that maybe this is sort of the basis of some kind of uh, consciousness, and, and it's really a property of the universe or something like that. Or you see this uh, research out of Japan many years ago where they got uh, single-celled uh, plasmodium, sort of like amoebas, to solve uh, network problems by probing them with light channels. And they think, how is that possible? So something else is going on. So maybe that has some kind of root in quantum phenomena, right? Or yes, and uh, it could be. And uh, yet, uh, on Earth, Today, there is no unambiguous proof that biology is truly using quantum to function optimally. And let me go a little bit over the, the evidence that exists and how we're trying to improve this evidence, because that is, I think, one of the reasons why quantum biology is not more embraced by the, the bio community and by the quantum community. So, for example, for um, test tube chemical reactions for photosynthetic complexes or for other types of, of chemical reactions, there is no doubt that there are quantum stuff uh, happening at room temperature in a way that really changes like the macroscopic outcome of chemical reactions. Another thing that we haven't mentioned is the fact that enzymes, enzymatic functioning, uh, seems to be uh, driven by quantum tunneling. If if your audience knows what that means, if not, that's fine. It's a quantum process. So in test tube chemistry, it's uncontroversial. Things inside biomolecules happen that are quantum mechanical at room temperature and for long enough so as to have a macroscopic effect. Now, the next level of evidence, it goes from uncontroversial chemistry evidence from like for many decades to beautiful, hard, but maybe not sufficient experiments conducted, say, by biologists at the level of like whole organisms from birds to, to slime mode, as you mentioned, to plates of cells. And um, 
to, to like little uh, uh, little organisms. And those organisms, those plates of cells seem to respond to external stimuli in a way that is consistent to what would be expected for them to do if this type of quantumness that is found in chemical reactions were in fact responsible for what they're doing, right? Uh, all the data that exists is correlative. So it goes from chemical land scales to very, very large land scales. And I think that uh, one of the first things that we need to do before we even think about uh, problems, as you were mentioning, about cognition or, or further things, right? We need to establish the foundation of whether, say, quantum mechanical effects can be sustained inside a single cell and measured so as to, to make an unambiguous link or refutal that those two things, that the, the chemistry land scales is really driving what's happening physiologically, macroscopically. So how are you bridging that gap? So, uh, I mean, I read an article that you're looking at this electron uh, quantum property of spin. So can you get into more detail of what that means to the Yes, audience? that is fascinating. And I hope to convince you that this is crazy. So hear me out here. So um, for those who are not familiar uh, with spins, so uh, spin is an intrinsic uh, quantum property of matter. There is no classical analogy to spins, but uh, everything has spin, like electrons have spins, uh, uh, atomic nuclei have spins, and spins are as fundamental as, say, mass and charge. In the same way that mass tells you how, say, an electron interacts with a gravitational field, charge tells you how an electron interacts with an electric field, spin tells you how an electron interacts with a magnetic field. In the same way that Positively charged ions react to an electric field differently from a negatively charged ion or an electron. Um, different spin states react differently to each magnetic field. For, for electrical charges, we have positive charges and negative charge, which is just a name. We could have called them like good charges, bad charges. In spin uh, speak, um, we represent spin uh, with an arrow, like arrow up represents one spin state, arrow down represents another spin state. And spin up and spin down represent different interactions, different ways of electrons, for example, interacting with external magnetic fields. Now, it's been known, again, uncontroversially for test tube reactions, that there are some chemical reactions that can be controlled uh, via the spin property of particular electrons. Here's how this happens. The chemical reaction happening, at some point, the chemical reaction comes to a crossroads and effectively at that point looks for the quantum spin state of a particular electron. If that spin is up, arrow up, the chemical reaction continues through one branch. If that particular electron spin is down, the chemical reaction continues through another branch. Importantly, the macroscopic final pro processes of those two branches are different. So there is no doubt that a finicky quantum property of an electron is known to change big time the macroscopic final products of chemical reactions. Now, if at the point where this chemical reaction is at this crossroads, the almighty electron spin that we care about, it sees an external magnetic field, it's going to talk to this uh, um, 
a magnetic field, it's going to interact with this magnetic field in a way that is indistinguishable from what I was mentioning about quantum sensing. It's going to quantum sense uh, this uh, magnetic field, which means that this external magnetic field is going to alter the probability of us finding the spin up and the chemical reaction continuing through one pathway or finding the spin down and the chemical reaction continuing through this other pathway. It's in this way that magnetic fields uh, via this spin quantum knob uh, have been known in test tube chemical reactions to alter the final products of chemical reactions. Okay. So now there's evidence that the same, uh, that again, that, that's what's thought to underlie the bird stuff, but it's, it goes way beyond birds because um, magnetic fields have been shown to alter a whole range of physiological phenomena in a way that is consistent with this type of electron spin dependent chemical reaction. Let me name some of those uh, phenomena that have been observed to, to, to be tweaked, to be able to be controlled by, mag by magnetic fields in a way consistent with this mechanism. It goes from yield of DNA repair up and down regulation of cell proliferation um, to uh, control of the production of uh, cellular uh, oxidants and anti antioxidants, regulation of uh, cellular um, uh, metaboli metabolism, cellular respiration rates. You have embryogenesis being messed up uh, by uh, magnetic fields, epigenetics. So there's a whole lot of important things happening biologically that seem to respond to magnetic fields in a way consistent with this spin mechanism being being the driving force. So that's what we want to start deterministically studying, because I maintain that once we have the deterministic codebook on how to tweak chemical reactions inside cells, with very precise magnetic field strengths and frequencies, we have a new knob, an electromagnetic knob, to control biology. You can think about going from a chemical way of looking at therapeutics to something like an electromagnetic way of looking at therapeutics, for example. You know, that's really, really, really fascinating. So um, what you're indicating is, and the, and the research is indicating that you have this spin property, and that spin property controls the type of chemical reaction that can occur, and you can you can manipulate this using magnetic, in fact, very weak magnetic fields, right? So there's yes. no yes. damage. It's not invasive, right? Can so. I add this? Yes, that's a very thank you, Stephen, for mentioning this for reasons that are well understood chemically. So people understand why that is. The magnetic fields that can actually alter the fate of those electron-spin-dependent chemical reactions are relatively weak on the order of the magnetic field of the Earth, on the order of your cell phones. This also means that if you put a vial of magnetosensitive proteins inside a big magnet, inside a magnetic resonance imager in a hospital, that big magnet will not change uh, things physiologically, at least not through this phenomenon that I'm describing. The thing here is that with very weak magnetic fields, you seem to be uh, getting a big macroscopic uh, biological effect. So up, up to now, research has been sort of phenomenological. People find sort, sort of almost by chance magnetic fields that, that fit some purpose, that do something. I think that the company that uh, really 
got a head start on this is a company called Novocure that is valued at uh, almost $10 billion now. They came up with an electromagnetic device that produces weak electromagnetic radiation. And uh, this device um, sort of um, decreases cellular proliferation rates for a very aggressive type of brain cancer. And uh, in all that is published, uh, nobody, uh, there's no mechanistic understanding of why those fields are the right fields to do this, but it works for their particular problem, right? And uh, now they have this device and the, the magnetic field frequencies and intensities that they use are consistent with the intensities and frequencies that you would expect to be driven by this type of uh, quantum phenomenon. So if this company is already making like almost $10 billion with this one magic magnetic field, imagine the power that you get if you can predictively change biology, not only for, uh, for, for cancer, but for a whole other range of a cellular functioning. So the technology to do this is already achievable. I mean, we don't need anything else than a cell phone. What's needed right now is this deterministic code book on how to go from the chemistry right, to this um, physiological changes in a way that is more than looking for a needle in a haystack, right? Like trying different magnetic fields. We want to know deterministically how to turn those, those quantum knobs so that maybe in a couple of years, we can go to our cell phone and say, well, today I need help with wound healing. Wound healing is also something that changes as a function of magnetic field in a way consistent with this quantum stuff. And then you go to your app and say wound healing. And then your cell phone produces the exact magnetic field frequency and intensity that you need. And then you just apply your cell phone close to your skin or something like that. So that's the vision, right? But you need a more deterministic, mechanistic understanding of what's going on at the nanoscale in order to, to make this a reality. Okay, so let me reflect on, on what we've talked about so far. So, uh, you know, you, you have Niels Bohr and Einstein are contemporaries and they're kind of competing against each other. And Einstein was always sort of didn't believe what <laughs> Niels Bohr was doing. So, you know, they come by uh, the um, Einstein and, and Rosen and, and uh, uh, Podolsky come up with the CPR paper in 1935, and they're trying to disprove it. And in that paper, they, they it suggests uh, a quantum entanglement. And so that's like the ultimate flaw in quantum theory. And then and yet, as you indicated, uh, transistors, electron, or electron right. that occurs in semiconductors yes. is based on quantum phenomena. GPS yes. is based on quantum phenomena. Uh, lasers and are based on yeah. phenomena. So even though there's controversy and people don't fully understand it, it's being used and it's everything. It's being used, exactly. Right. So exactly. even here, there's something there. It does work. Even though you may not understand all the pieces of it, if you can control it in a deterministic way. When you say deterministic, that means you can get a, a, a known outcome, yes. a known trigger, then you've got something useful, just like the billions of transistors that are in my iPhone or absolutely they all work. Yes. Yes. Or the lasers, or even some of the early work now that's occurring with quantum computing and it's based on entanglement, right? Well, yes, yes. yes. And, and and work is coming out and saying, you know what? Uh, we've got quantum supremacy. It may be a toy problem, but it does work. Now let's right. see if we can apply this right, and get more coherence right. and things like that. But 
what's exciting about your work is it can happen in squishy, wet environments and doesn't need superconducting and things like this, right? So. Exactly. That is uh, what we want to unambiguously prove or disprove. Let me make a comment. People from quantum computing think that this comment is, is a heresy, but I'm going to make this comment anyway. <laughs> I really think that quantum biology is today where quantum computing was like 30 years ago. Uh, in, in particular, uh, 30 years ago, there was a lot of like theory done on, on yeah. like quantum protocols and stuff. And the, the first quantum gates were just started being implemented, right? Simple quantum gates with, with ions and stuff. So I think quantum biology is at this injunction where there's already a lot of uh, theoretical quantum physicists modeling those things, how those things could happen. There's a lot uh, of biologists and chemists doing those beautiful, hard experiments at those very distinct length scales. I think that the challenge now, I think the experiments that are really going to move the needle are the experiments um, that the, the quantum engineer can bring to this field. Uh, I think that uh, with quantum-like experiments uh, happening inside, say, a single cell uh, where you can initialize, manipulate, and read out, for example, those spin degrees of freedom inside a single cell and see how the preparation of certain spin states influence downstream physiological processes in a very uh, controlled way. I think this type of experiment like that the, the, the quantum engineer uh, can do, I think that's the kind of experiment that is going to be necessary for, uh, for the field to be accepted and to finally become mainstream uh, to to have more than correlative but rather causal data yeah but but you already indicated there's a there's a startup company that's valued in the billions and they've got something that is working no, no, based no, on no, this idea no 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 no, no it, it, they don't say that they don't say that it's based on this idea and i don't think they are aware of it uh, right. there's a lot of people uh, actually, there's another uh, company. There are two other companies uh, from Singapore, uh, one doing breast cancer treatment, the other one doing muscle regeneration. Right. All those fields are consistent with what would be expected in the range for this type of spin-dependent chemical reaction. In particular, right. I, I don't think Novo, this mechanism from Novocure is not mentioned. And I think there it's a consensus that Nowadays, you sort of find fields that work, which is, as I was saying, it's akin to finding a needle in a haystack because you have like a very big phase space. You have magnetic field right. intensity, frequency, direction. Some fields are found that's good for particular things, right? For, for example, uh, if you apply the magic uh, Novocure magnetic field, you down-regulate cellular proliferation. But maybe a very close by magnetic field upregulates cell proliferation, makes the cells, the, the, the cancer cells multiply faster. So, so it's, it's all a guessing game right now. Right. And you're trying to remove that guessing game, right? By doing the fundamental research to indicate the, the close tie in between this foundational theory. And once you get this nailed, the foundational theory, and understand it, then you can more precisely control. And create all sorts of uh, technologies that yes. can be used. And that's where yes. you're talking about the regulation of reactive uh, uh, oxygen, which is like oxidation yes. versus antioxidants. If you can yes. manage that, 
then you can do all sorts of uh, treatments. So, and, and again, that there's data that this happens, right? Uh, there, there's data that exists right. for more than forty years that weak magnetic fields change those things. It's right. just heuristic. Like right. there is no like if we increase the field, this is what happens. If we change the frequency, this is what happens. So we want to to, to put a little bit more systematizing into this, and I think right. that right. the way okay. to do this is via quantum physics. Right, and, and like you said, uh, I mean, there's already there's evidence yes. that there is this uh, correlation or this correlation or yes. connection. It's more than correlation, yes. it's like this connection between and causation, and you're just trying to figure out how do <laughs> how do you fine tune these knots? Why you exactly, about, exactly. That's yeah. Yeah, you talked about uh, you know oxygen species, but also epigenetic changes, uh, which. Yes. You know the environmental changes that can occur uh, with gene expression in your body, and it could be even DNA methylene markers on your DNA. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And and if oh, embryogenesis. Oh, can I talk about embryogenesis? That's super <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I have a friend um, who's a precision measurement uh, physicist. What he does for a living is he builds very good Faraday cages, very good cages uh, that shield external magnetic fields. Mm -hmm. He does that for a living. He's like world expert in that. His name is Peter Fierlinger. He's at the uh, TU Technical University of Munich. So the magnetic field of the Earth is about 50 microtesla. Inside one of his chambers, uh, you have a noise level of, of about like one nanotesla. And then what he does is like he shoves ultra cold atoms experiments inside to do precision measurements. That's what he does. But then people started coming with ideas, oh, magnetic fields in biology. So here's what he did in his lab as a physicist. And now this has been reproduced. So uh, he grew tadpoles, like frog embryos, inside those chambers under two conditions. In one condition, he applied inside a tiny magnetic field comparable to the Earth's, and after a couple of days, the tadpoles looked okay. In the other uh, experiment, he grew the tadpoles for uh, two days only under this very tiny nanotesla field. So after two days only under this nanotesla field, 30 to 40% of the embryos were macroscopically deformed, macroscopically not viable anymore, like wouldn't continue. Think about what this means, for example, for right. space exploration. So I, you don't even need to add a field. Taking the tiny magnetic field of the Earth out seems to be doing stuff. And because the magnitude of the fields are so small, everyone's best guess is that it's not like a permanent magnet inside the frog embryos and things like this and, and it happens in frog embryos in other types of, of human cells so for example can we reproduce in mars can we do space farming in mars mars has a ultra weak electromagnetic field magnetic yeah. field so i've been trying to, to talk to nasa people right it's not only about microgravity and cosmic radiation it's also about magnetic fields mm -hmm. isn't this crazy yeah, it, it, I mean, it's fascinating. And, and uh, you know, you talk about this epigenetic uh, changes to induce uh, pluripotency. I think that's a really fascinating idea, right? So yes. can, you, can you can you describe that to the audience? What do you what do you mean by inducing uh, pluripotency? Um, so there's a lot of literature that um, that shows that weak magnetic fields can change uh, uh, stem cells. Right. So, for example, uh, there are some animals or some uh, some organisms that are simpler than, say, a human that can regenerate very well. I mean, 
for example, from very simple uh, planarians, like little worms, flat worms, to like salamanders, they can regenerate very well. And again, I'm, I'm going to tone myself down here because I'm not trained as a biologist, but it seems that um, in such organisms, organisms that can regenerate limbs, they have a very high percentage of stem cells, like undifferentiated cells that can be deployed at any point to reconstruct stuff. With weak magnetic fields in certain organisms, you you can uh, actually change the pathways of uh, of stem cells, like make more of one type of cells and, and less of the other type of cells. Imagine if we could do the same for humans again one day, right? By understanding exactly how those things work, it might be conceivable in the far future that once we lose a, a limb or something that we can, in a very controlled way, put to use our own like very tiny quantity of stem cells to reconstruct this missing limb. Of course, this is complete science fiction right now, right? But I think we need to start doing research into like magnetic fields as applied to regeneration uh, soon too. That's another very important uh, aspect of this research. Well, that's that's really interesting. It, it kind of reminds me of David Sinclair's or Yamanaka's, you know, uh, work in you know these four molecules. And tell me more. Tell me more. I don't know about that. Well, Yamanaka um, came up. Uh, in fact, he got the 2012 Nobel Prize for this, where uh, you can you can apply these molecules to adult stem cells, and you can regress them into uh, clear point and uh, stem cells, you, adult stem or adult cells, I should say, you can regress oh, into clear point and uh, That's super cells. cool, okay. Yeah, and, and then and then uh, what he did is he said, well, that's really interesting. I could sort of rejuvenate an adult yep. cell into going backwards in time. And so it becomes a, a clear point stem cell, in fact. In fact, one that could be anything, right? And then he said, well, what if I stop that process somewhere between and let's apply it to a whole organism? So um, he applied it to, let's say, mice, and he was able to get them to rejuvenate, but then they would get cancer. They would get tumors, right? And then um, maybe about a year ago, uh, what they did is they, they found that not, I don't think it's his group, but another group found that if you don't use all four molecules, but you only use... Yeah three molecules, uh, they're called the Yamanaka factors. So you only use three and you carefully control them. You can actually do a rejuvenation without getting tumors. Uh, oh, so that's fascinating. Yeah, so it looks like maybe you can uh, apply this to different organs and rejuvenate. Now there's this idea of applying it to the whole body. And so, that, so in fact, Yamanaka uh, has been, uh, um, he's em embraced into a new startup, which has massive, uh, I mean, it's probably cool. trying to address this work in some way. So cool. But if you look at David Sinclair at Harvard, uh, it's very similar. This idea of this epigenetic uh, sort of uh, formula of some sort, and, and oh. it, it carries some kind of information. The, the, and, and if you can control it, then you can get. Um, does it require like uh, genetic engineering? It, um, from what I understand, I, and, and this is just one branch of the research, there'd be many, many applications. You can deliver it uh, using probably some kind of safe virus to deliver. Oh, okay, cool. And then you use an antibody to to manage it, right? So, okay, cool. 
and then the so idea that, is, yeah and then rather than just applying it to one one time a fragment of your body why not try to do a whole body right awesome but the idea then is if you can do that then you can get a situation where somebody's or an animal that's older and you can regress them till they're like 24, the equivalent to OR 24, and then they start naturally aging. And, and so why at some point you, you maybe you could apply that to humans as well. So in my yep. keynotes, I always say, you know, don't think of aging as a mastering this idea as 50 years out or hundred, it's yeah. going to be the next 10 it's years. It's going to change. It's, it's yeah. going to change. And that that's super, but your work it, is related, it, right? I mean, this idea so, of, of a weak magnetic totally. field and it can uh, uh, it affect epigenetic changes, which then gets this idea into totally. and, uh, and uh, pluripotency, right? So, and I, then, I think uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's totally related, and it's a, a different way of thinking about how to actuate on biology. Right. right, it goes from the molecular recognition lock and key, right, from that to more like electromagnetics in biology, right? The cool thing about that, I think, and I, I again, uh, I, I don't think I, I mentioned, is that for, for this electromagnetic stuff, there is no genetic engineering required. Yeah, exactly. It's not- The knobs are there. Yes. Yeah, no, I love it. I mean, it's like Mary Lou Jepsen and her work that she's doing, right? Where um, she can get um, yeah. brain cells to kind of implode uh, just by non-invasive uh, sound waves, or she can do other kinds of work with non-invasive uh, near-infrared, I think, or right. some kind of lasers, right. um, but, which penetrate the body, but in a, a harmless way, right? And, yeah, exactly. But if you can do this with uh, weak magnetic, or, uh, magnetic fields, it's the same and, and in, yeah. in, in some way, I think in the future, it's going to be a combination of all those right. techniques, right? You can genetic engineer to have a stronger magnetic field response. I, I really think there's synergy there. Right. And I think that electromagnetics in biology in particular has been underlooked, right. understudied, underestimated as this extra knob that we can use as a control knob, really, right? Right, and then you talk about self proliferation and wound healing. So if you, if you can somehow trigger yeah. this, uh, the self proliferation, then um, rather than the other side, if again if you can control the knob properly, you can control uh, proliferation, which then helps with cancer. Yes. Or and on the other side, if you can go it the other way, then you can help with wound healing. I can see that. Yeah, and you can help biomanufacturing, right? right. Imagine if you can uh, upregulate the production of lab-grown meat cells or bacteria that produces the enzymes or whatever that you care about. You make them multiply faster because of a weak magnetic field or like crappily yeah. produced by a cell phone-like device. Yeah, or a cellular re uh, re uh, respiration rate. You talk about yeah. ion, uh, channel functioning DNA repair. I mean, um, aging sometimes is thought of some kind of DNA uh, problems. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you talk about protein and uh, growing proteins and things like this. You know, uh, the Terasaki Institute is working in this area. I should connect you to them. Yes, I or, will. Or at then. least show your work to them to see if they'd be interested. Philip Wong has developed at Stanford, and uh, he's a semiconductor expert. Yes. But he's got, he's been able to uh, mic reduce the size of these chips that they're so small they can. In, be inserted not, uh, into cells without disrupting the function of cells, 
What if you can oh, use that? Well, they, they phagocyte the cells. The cells absorb the the chips. Yeah, yeah or yeah, he, he's able to get, or he implants these uh, chips into the cells, and they don't disrupt the function of the cells. They don't disrupt oh. the, the ability of the cell to do uh, um, it, its metabolism or anything else. But what you can do then is you can sense using these chips and control the behavior of the cells. But what if he were to uh, integrate what you're doing with what yep. he's doing i think there's a kind of a synergy between his that's work that's very you know? cool that's very cool i was not a, uh, aware of that i'm going to google him cool nice. yeah his name is philip wong and and because um you know transistors are you know they're familiar with st uh, electrons and spin states and there's spin electronics now in quantum computing um this kind this is not I mean, it's not unfamiliar, right? It's no. familiar territory. So, yes. you should look, excuse me, look at his work, and and then on the on the uh, wound healing and self proliferation side, and look at the work at the Terasaki Institute. They're they're actually yes. at just wait, you're at UCLA. They're at UCLA. I, they at they're UCLA. very close to UCLA. They actually they have a new uh, campus now. A yeah, they opened up a fifty thousand okay. square foot. Do you, yes. Have you talked to them? You yes, yes, I have. Yes, I oh, have. Okay, that's yes. great. They know me. They know of me. Yes, they know. Okay, me. God, I mean, there's... isn't it? Isn't it crazy? I mean, it, there's a lot of synergy. I I, I agree with right. that too. And and also with Philip, it is work, right? So, Philip, I don't know personally, but that, that would be awesome. Yes. Yeah, I'm telling you, um, it, it, it's it's actually really really interesting, and and. I guess, like you say, this can get into drug development and therapeutic devices with, that are non-invasive, and you can remotely actuate them, and and like you say, it's accessible as anybody with a mobile phone, right? I mean, it yeah. just it's it's amazing, right? And then the implications of space travel and realizing that when you remove these uh, magnetic fields, what what is the implication? Tiny magnetic fields, tiny yeah, magnetic tiny, fields. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't know why everybody should be looking at this. I, I, I know. Just... <laughs> I know. Oh, so, so you know what I heard? So here's what I heard. Because uh, research in electromagnetics in biology is a taboo in the West, but research has never stopped in the East, like in, in China, Russia, and Japan. Uh, I was told uh, by, by someone that probably one of the reasons for that is that after, again, not, not a historian here, historians in the audience, Correct me if I'm wrong, but after World War II, the chemical industry in the West became super strong. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the pharmaceutical industry, so that the cure for everything was chemical, in that there was a super strong uh, pull to develop chemicals as treatments. Right. right? So uh, that might have pushed electromagnetics and biology a little bit aside. And maybe it's it's time to bring it back to the mainstream, right? As a very, in, in the end, uh, Stephen, even if it's not a spin phenomenon that is driving those 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 weak magnetic field phenomena, it's still a lever. It's still a knob. Right. right. We should understand how they work. Right. Even exactly. if it's not quantum, right. they work. I mean, there's evidence that it works. How on earth is that working? And if the spin theory doesn't work, we need to come up with another theory to understand this. The implications are the same. Your cell phone can treat you. Yeah. Uh, so I, 
do, do you look at uh, I, so you're 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 an enthusiast, you're a researcher in this whole area of nanosensors and harnessing room temperature quantum effects on noisy environments. So it's 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 quite amazing. But you got the support of UCLA, right, in this quantum uh, biology tech tech lab. Yes, I I, I run my own lab. Uh, I uh, I've been funded by private um, foundations such as the Moore Kavli. Idor Foundation uh, by NSF, uh, also by uh, the Army, uh, the, the Navy, ONR. Right. Um, th there's a lot of military applications, you know, like... Yeah, for sure, yeah. For, for, for if you will, for bioelectromagnetic hazards, because if right. someone is trying to disrupt ourselves right. with an electromagnetic field, because the necessary fields are weak, right. you don't need a big weapon. You can use a small, you don't need a big cannon of electromagnetic energy or anything, right. because the necessary strengths are very, very weak. You just need to hit on that particular frequency and, and intensity, and you can either improve things or, or like improve performance, right? Or decrease physiological performance in ways that are not mapped out or that are not clearly mapped out for the world to see. Yeah, I can see DARPA being interested in your work as well, right? Uh, because the implications are so broad, but also for healing as well, right? So- Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's a, a double-edged sword completely, right? right? Have, have you uh, uh, talked to have a, uh, have a Singleman? I, I think there's some- Ava Sigelman yeah. has done work with, uh, I think she's at Rutgers. Uh, she came out with a paper in about 92, 93 on superturing. And it's it's um, this aspect of stochastic, out of the stochastic noise that comes out, you can get um, yeah. kind of these quantum effects that you can capture in analog and then get superturing computation. And she's so transdisciplinary the two of you just getting on a Zoom call or, or awesome. Talk. That's I, I just googled her. Cool. You, that, you, you need to talk to her because <laughs> um, I can see how you would have so much synergies to kind of more knobs to turn to, to, to turn to control. And interdisciplinary science is hard, right? Because right, half right. of the time I don't know what I'm doing right but that's that's also the very fun part of it we're always learning and and like everyone in the lab has a different it has a different angle to contribute to, to the team so i think that's very important too okay so I, I can see where where your work came from i can see where it's going and and now I, i'm going to ask you what what is the ideal case for you then and let's say in three years time you know, you're working on this research, you're looking at the spin angle, but if it's not the spin angle, you're willing to pivot. You're just looking for something where you can understand it. I mean, because you the have control. You could, yes. Yeah, you can make it deterministic, right? So, yes, yes. Uh, uh, right now, we already have more correlative data from our own lab that and we chose parameters that were published in the literature and we see the same things, which is which is good, right? Now, we just need those build big quantum-like machines to find out this code book, to go beyond those correlative data that uses magnetic fields from the literature or that make guesses of magnetic fields based on what was published before. And our goal is to, within three years, to have those big quantum-like machines. So what we build are, are like big uh, glorified microscopes with coils. 
they they don't look like microscopes where you put your ear. They look like what you would expect if you opened uh, the door for a quantum sensing, quantum computing lab. It's all uh, synchronized down to the nanosecond. It's like a quantum experiment that works on a biological sample, if you will. Right. And with those uh, experiments that are completely uh, sample agnostic and that can take data for for more than, than a decade as any other type of mainstream non-biological quantum experiment, uh, we will be able, I think, to, to try to further the connection between those two lens scales, the chemical lens scales and the physiological lens scales by looking, for example, at the behavior of spins inside a single cell, inside proteins inside a single cell, for example, and see whether certain spin states are or are not correlated with some downstream physiological consequences. Did, did, did uh, you know, the Global Good Lab got absorbed into uh, the Gates Foundation, but prior to that, Mauricio Vecchioni used to run it, right? So... Who's that? Oh, tell me more. Who's Mauricio? Uh, well, he's he's now the chief innovation officer at the Terrasaki Institute. His name is uh, Mauricio Vecchioni. Oh, I know him. Okay, okay. Tell me more. Uh, uh, I, I know Mauricio, but but, but how well, was he involved with the Gate Foundation before? Yes, tell me. Well, um, Bill uh, set up a lab called the Global Good Lab and Fund. And okay. what they would do is they would take um, concepts like what you have, and they would fund it totally to uh, creating a solution, right? And that could be deployed uh, globally, but it'd be the big picture kind of <laughs> project they would take on. It's because I, when I toured the lab in 2018, I guess it was May, they showed me this new kind of microscope uh, that they, they had created. They ID'd, uh, they did ideation of it. Okay. Then they produced this first version that filled up an entire room. And then they showed uh, me how they were able to iterate it down to something that was the size of a coffee pot. Awesome. And it's a new kind of uh, microscope, right? But in a nice. non-traditional sense. And then they uh, terra power in this uh, liquid salt uh, nuclear reactor, which is safe. They ideated the same thing and then they were able to create it. And that's what they did. And they just constantly were doing ideation and taking something cool. and totally uh, converting it, translating it into something that could be used and scaled globally. And That is so fascinating. Who's the contact there? <laughs> Who do I talk to? That's that's fascinating. Well, that's exactly you know, if, the type well, of... Mauricio that's... would know. I mean, Mauricio would still... You should talk to Mauricio. Cool. Because, because you know the people at Terasaki, right? So, yes. yes. So talk to Mauricio. That's Mar amazing. Yeah, that's and amazing. stay with Mauricio. Uh, ask him if the Google... Global Good Lab within the Gates Foundation is still doing this kind of work, right? And if they are, this is something that uh, I think, I mean, Bill, I think Bill Gates would be interested in this kind of work because the application is so broad, right? I know, I know. It's so underlooked. Right. It's, uh, there's a lot of potential there that should be explored. And in the end, quantum or not, it's it's a knob. It's a weird it's a knob. knob. Yeah, exactly. So it's let's understand weird. the knobs better. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, exactly. Right. It's it's our understanding of biology. So uh, right now, biology is sort of at the Newton's laws level, <laughs> right? How mechanobiology? If you push something, what happens? This is this is like really at least if it, if not quantum, if not light matter interactions, as we would call uh, in the quantum community, it's at at least electromagnetics in biology. Right. So we need to move further than Newton's laws and go to Maxwell's equations in biology, right? right? And then 
from there maybe to, to quantum. Yes, quantum, no quantum, but yeah, it's a knob. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, one of, one of the um, scientists that they work with at the Terasaki Institute, uh, Shi Ling Shen. And he, I know, Shi he's awesome. He's so nice. Yeah, I know, he's and so he's got nice. electrical engineering too, right? So I know, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I, and when I talked to him, I think he got what uh, what our vision was. He, he's, yeah, awesome. He did, he's awesome, he's awesome. Right, and because you're both electrical engineers by training, then you you want to look at the practical side of this, thing. and you yes. understand yes. the quantum phenomena because electrical engineering is sort of based on yes. phenomena, right? Yes. So, okay, well, um, we're down to our last question, and sort of, what would you like to leave the audience? <laughs> what, what sort of recommendation? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking. I love. As any scientist, I love talking about my research. Thanks for humoring me. Um, I Well, two things I want to share with your audience. The first is about uh, quantum literacy. Uh, in the same way that at 25 years ago, the only people who learned how to code were maybe engineering or physics undergrads. And, and, and now the, the educationally privileged are learning coding even as early as middle school and Every field of knowledge benefits from, from knowing how to code. Think about even linguists coding for speech patterns, right? Coding is recognized as a universal skill. I hope and I think that uh, the same will be true for quantum mechanics, uh, the, the instruction literacy in the, in the near future, because quantum mechanics is required, again, to understand the, live, the, the world that you already live in. Right to understand how basic things such as your classical computer, your laser pointer, how those things work. So I hope that uh, quantum literacy becomes a thing, becomes recognized as uh, a universal skill set. And I think that's also the way that we're going to end up bringing more people to the game of quantum biology. If everyone, chemists, biologists, uh, engineers, material scientists, is everyone, if everyone has if everyone has a, an idea about what quantum is and the power of quantum, I think that there's potential for us to discover what quantum biology can bring. The second thing that I would like to leave your audience with is um, a, a, the, I'm very proud of that, but the American Physical Society has just published my opinion piece um, called It's Time to Take Quantum Biology Research Seriously. I'm very happy because this is one of the first times that the American Physical Society actually recognizes this, this feud. And I think it's an important path towards validation of what we're trying to do and understanding of what it takes to do interdisciplinary research and how far and how far can, can it get us, right? So the idea of like being healed by your phone at some point in the near term. You know, thank you so much. And Clarissa, you got to make sure you send that uh, a revised uh, profile for the interview with all the links, including your, to your work at the lab and so on, right? So I will. I will. And uh, Clarissa, it's such a pleasure to have you come in. It was, I really enjoyed this. Uh, me too. Thank <laughs> uh, you for having me. With you, so. Thank you for, for, for teaching me the, the things about biology and stuff like those small molecule stuff. I'm going to read more about that too. Always an opportunity to learn. So take care and uh, thank you again. Thank you. Talk to you, Stephen. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast. 
platform that brings you knowledge, experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called you.